Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hey, before we jump into this episode, I just want to take a second to let you know how you can support this podcast. Between the three podcasts that I do, there's a fair amount of prep time, time to record and mix the episodes, and I would prefer to not have to use ads. So the best way you can support my efforts is to buy one of my books. They're all available on Amazon, but the best way to pick them up is on bookshop.org. Bookshop is a website designed to support local bookstores. You can select a local store and they get a cut of the profits. All the extra money if you don't select a bookstore goes into a pot that supports all local bookstores. Personally, I chose my local store, Mysterious Galaxies. You can choose to support any store in the U.S. that is a partner to support and there are thousands. This is a win-win-win. Support the podcast, support your local bookstore, and you get a book in the end. They're pretty entertaining, at least I think so. From my Splatterpunk Award-nominated eco-horror novel Ring of Fire to the satire of the vegan revolution with zombies, Nazi skinhead werewolves and boot boys of the Wolfreich, to the haunted punk rock tour van and punk rock ghost story. And my latest release is a science fiction novel, Goddamn Killing Machines. Think of The Dirty Dozen meets Philip K. Dick. They're all available right now on bookshop.org. Also, don't forget to hit like buttons and share episodes that you enjoy and help spread the conversations. All right, joining me on Postcards from a Dying World, an old friend, former neighbor of mine, uh, who lived around the corner from me in Portland for a little while, and somebody who I ran into at Supercuts once. Uh, <laughs> uh, but for me. Uh, I know, they took it all, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jerry Robert Johnson, thank you for joining Postcards from a Dying World. Yeah. I'm super stoked to have you back because you're a return guest because I took an interview that I did with you and put it on the feed early in this podcast. So you were here for Entropy in Bloom, but um, talking about that short story collection. So if people want to go back and listen to that, that's really good because we got really into the nitty gritty of short stories. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about your brand new novel, The Loop, which I have here. Um, and you obviously probably have like 19 million copies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting on some inventory. Yeah, you're right. Uh, especially this year, you can't do conventions and all that. And yeah, right. So it's all it's all signing book plates this year. Right. Is, it's not the same thing. It's not it's not the same kind of fun as like actually getting to see people and say, hey, so. Right. Well, and I think in a lot of ways, your success in this book is, is, is extra special for me for a lot of reasons. But, um, but for one thing is that we kind of grew up uh, like on parallel tracks because we're about the same age and we both grew up reading Fangoria, obsessed with John Carpenter movies and um, writing really bad attempts at short stories that we wanted to turn into novels someday. Yep. So tell me, uh, oh, and growing up in a small town, so, yeah, and uh, so we got all that going in common, and punk rock, 
Well, and yeah, I made an 18 month straight edge, which is not close to your record, but is a long time for a person in their, you know, late teens, early 20s. <laughs> so it's not it's pretty good. 31 years, but you know. Yeah, you got me, you got me beat on, on the pure metrics. Yeah, by if you count by numbers, you get me beat. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> the loop is, and I saw you posted a picture. Somebody sent you a picture of the loop in the wild from a Barnes and Nobles in Louisville, and mm -hmm. and first of all, it's in camera shot with all the Koontz and King books because you have J privilege. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and but tell me about the feeling of uh, of that before we get into the nitty gritty of writing this. Uh it was you know it. I was kind of in shock at first. I mean, I I was in Barnes and Noble with Entropy and Bloom, but it's back before there was this kind of horror renaissance, right? And so I was in science fiction. Uh, so I was by Robert Jordan and N.K. Jemisin, which is just, you know, excellent writers, just not my vibe, right? Not not exactly what Entropy and Bloom was doing. So the fact that, that my first official proper novel through a big five publisher is sitting there at the same time, the, the horror revival has kind of happened and there's a horror section again, you know, instead of horror just being, you know, dispersed into all the different little little areas wherever they think they can sneak it. Um, just felt awesome. Like it felt like, you know, uh, aside from everything else that's terrible this year, it felt like a, a rad part of 2020. <laughs> the, the horror is on the rise and, and then I finally had a book out. So, um, and then just seeing it in that company too, seeing some of those pictures and, and uh, you know, seeing it next to, to authors that I grew up reading, you know, that, that feels awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of company, I mean, this year, it's not just that that horror's got a shelf again, it's that the, 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 the quality and the caliber of the releases this year is insane. On, on, in most years, you know, and I'm not, this might sound like a jerk move to say this, but in most years, this book might be my number one. Yeah. It's also <laughs> the same year that the only- No, this year is crazy. Year. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I already put it out there publicly. Like the, the only good Indians is going to win the Stoker and the Shirley Jackson Award, and and I wouldn't be surprised. I think you know if it doesn't pick up some other, you know, even on the literary front, doesn't see some recognition. So uh, just just you know, a phenomenal novel and a breakthrough for for Stephen and somebody who's put in the work. I mean, you want to talk about a craftsman who's done the ten thousand hours at their desk. You know, Jones writes incessantly. So so really yeah. cool to see. Uh, see that payoff for him and and just you know there's been a bunch of other heavyweights you know coming out of the same time as a as you know a new Mallerman new Max Brooks um you know uh new Tremblay that's also about the pandemic he and I I, I kind of see Survivor Song and and um uh, the loop as kind of kind of separated at birth twins like they they definitely both do the the pandemic horror thing um mine's just a little more well in the pacing you know yeah, and the pacing of both books is 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 very similar. Uh, there's like a kinship in that too, and we'll get into that when we get into the structure of writing it. But what's interesting to me too about this year and everything, and I would add um, uh, Mexican Gothic, yeah. Salvi Marina Garcia is a great one too. Um, just an incredible year for horror, uh, and it's really great to see. And in a weird way too, because. Um, in many ways, like Skullcrack City is like more my jam, yeah. right? <laughs> than than the loop, yeah. because it's got the the, the mind fuckery and the and, and 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 you know that going on. But one of the things that I think is really gratifying as your friend, as somebody who's you know watched you come up in this, is that 
The Loop is a very assured novel. It's very, um, even though I might personally like Skulltrack City a little bit more, The Loop is just a really assured and solid piece of, of writing, you know, that is probably better. This is, this is not, not quite as much my thing as right. Skullcrack, right. I'm just being honest. But, but I'm so impressed with just how solid it is and, and how, how rock solid it is. So we'll get into that. Cool. That too. But yeah, this year, the company, I mean, when you look at the, 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 the Goodreads um, Choice Awards nominations came out today. And just looking at that list of books, like all together, it, it, it's, it's phenomenal. And, um, and science fiction has some, some, some uh, solid ones this year too. MK Jemison's The City We Became. And I, I haven't gotten to um, the new Ken Stanley Robinson, but it looks amazing too. So it's just, you know, uh, yes, this year has sucked for many things, but yeah. books. <laughs> the books, it's been a great time for the books. Yeah, because yeah. we're a lot of us are home a lot. So yeah, oh my goodness, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's become an essential essential survival tool in my opinion. You know, I know streaming's way up. You know, and Disney Plus hit their fifty million they were gunning for, um, <laughs> but it's nice that books have seen you know certain genres of books have seen seen a renaissance during this uh, too. You know, not, not like travel guides are way down. <laughs> I read that yesterday. <laughs> exactly. The, tra the travel guide sector has been hard hit, but like gardening books are way up. Um, right. you know, there's, there's different, different realms in which things have been solid. And I, that's important to me because, uh, for booksellers and, and small presses and, and, um, you know, even stores like Powell's and stuff that were so hard hit at the very beginning of this, that there was enough in happening in online ordering that they were able to bring back a hundred of their staff is really heartening, you know? Yeah, totally. That's, that's a bummer when that's a bunch of people, you know. And they're out of work and then all of a sudden people are like no we we really want books we want so many books we need you guys to come ship to us all day you know so uh, i'm really glad that you brought up travel guides because it's it, it was obviously a smart move for you to cancel your travel guide project yeah right the loop right yeah i had to shift gears big time <laughs> switch gears yeah and uh so so the loop obviously was one um that uh i think you've been hatching it for a while or at least it seems yeah. like it and um, were there <clears throat> multiple projects that you were considering and this is one that you chose or is this this been the primary one in your, um, your site for a while? This this was always out there kind of in the hopper from 2014 because um, my agent had contacted me and she said, hey, did you ever did you ever consider doing a YA horror? She said that it's it's kind of uh, this burgeoning genre and, and she had seen some good sales and in that market. And I thought to myself, I was like, I'm always interested in experiment, you know, especially in my short fiction, it was always about trying out a new form or trying a new technique. Um, to me, that experimentation is part of what makes it compelling if I have to sit there for hours doing it. And um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to take a look at what the restrictions are and see what I can get away with and, and try and write something that is uh, kind of from that perspective. But then in the background, in the meantime, Skullcrack City, uh, somehow took off. It just completely took off and, and became this commercial thing that we thought was going to be just a totally divisive book. And, you know, this avant-garde thing that was going to pop up in the underground and have some ardent fans and also be very hated. And instead, it was like kind of roundly successful. And um, we had enough people contacting us saying they wanted more of that, that my agent called me up and she said, um, never mind the YA thing, do whatever you do. 
<laughs> and so I already had all that kind of research in the, in this, in the, the beginnings of a story I wanted to tell. And I thought to myself, well, I still like the idea of telling a coming of age story and telling a story about these kinds of conflict and an invasion, you know, riff on invasion of the body snatchers and, and, uh, you know, shivers and all that. And so yeah. I just kind of went for it. Cause when you were talking about, it, I was like, this is your attempt at YA because there's <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it was so there's 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 YA elements in it right there's yeah I mean there's teenagers so, but they're not yeah they're not the Stranger Thing kids right they're a lot closer to like Carrie for us was YA right you're growing up in the 80s yeah. like the closest thing you got to teen fiction was you know or you know it Carrie um that was that was our YA and so to me this is this is more akin to that it's just like you know, horror that happens to have, um, you know, youthful protagonists at, at the center. Well, and you and I are both people who, and we've talked about this many times before, we both were reading way, way ahead of when we should have been, um, you know. Or the, just the right time, like, yeah, depending on the perfect time. Yeah. yeah. Depending on how you look at it. But um, I still have my copy of the of the stand that has a note, do social studies report. Yeah, uh, perfect. <laughs> inside the cover. Um, that's a pretty beaten up version of the stand, but, uh, and I don't know if I ever did finish that social studies report. I'm assuming I did, but. But you finished the stand. That's the important part. I, yeah, for my life, it was a little bit more important. I, yeah. I um, but yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, I think this book could appeal to to teenagers and and to all that, but but it's interesting because like I, you know, the success of Skullcrack City and like the fact that people were were into how bizarre and how weird it was made it just fine to to go bonkers again, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was that was the essence of it. Is it was kind of just all of a sudden I was granted you know, permission by the marketplace to try and sell what I already do. Uh, you know, the, the danger there being, um, it wasn't written to a market. I just went in again, trying to do what I do. And then luckily my agent accepted it. You know, she, yeah. she actually, she was the one that told me Skullcrack City is a little too crazy uh, for the broader marketplace. And you're better off, you know, putting this out in the small press and building your platform. Um, so, you know, she's had work of mine before where she's like, this is, <laughs> this is beyond the pale. Right. Um, you know, but she had enough faith in this one to try and put it out there and, and, uh, so far so good. Yeah. 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 And it seems to be, you know, working to plan. I mean, and, and there are ways you could have gone with, um, you know, we've certainly seen authors do like Laird Barron doing the crime fiction, which is, you know, a lot more restrained, I guess. By, by Laird terms, it's still very weird crime fiction. Well, yeah, no. Yeah, compared to the old leaf stuff, yeah. I personally prefer, and I've told Laird this, you know, I personally prefer his crime trilogy. And of course, it gets more bonkers if you read all three books. But, you know, um, I I actually think that the first book and the limitations of of not doing Supernatural was was a benefit. for him because um, I think it honed a lot of strengths that made when it when when the books got weirder later yeah. uh, you yeah. know better much in the same way that I think doing some of your dad horror that you do um, probably you know 
I think honed your ability to focus in on a lot of those characterizations that come out of like delving into those new adult fears that you have, um, you know, in uh, Sleep of Judges and uh, in the river and like, you know, and, and doing that. Do you think that doing those dad horror pieces when you came back to something that's like more body horror and, and insane, like helped? It's, it seemed to me that it did. No, it, um, it definitely did. And, and thank you, uh, because that was something I was concerned with from the get go. Um, you know, yeah, because it was, yeah, both, both in the river and sleep of judges were much more character based pieces. Uh, and they were for me, you know, my attempt to, well, sleep of judges, I've always said was my attempt to merge like Paul Tremblay S dad horror with the uncertainty of a Brian Evanson story. You know, those were two guys I was really uh, vibing on their work at the time. And I was like, what if I, what if I could merge the kind of the easy connection you get with telling a, a family at risk story um, and that kind of relatability. But then I also merged in this kind of cosmic dread and the unknown, you know, from, from what I got from like a lot of Evanson shorts um, and then ended up also spending a lot of time just, you know, almost doing kind of a literary take on the, on the characters and even more so with, um, within the river, that's like a very restrained piece of work for me. Like there's no, there are no swear words, there are no jokes there. Uh, it's got a, it's got a specific syntax that I developed just for the story. Um, and so, yeah, doing both of those, I felt like I was bringing some new tools to the loop as far, especially as far as characterization um, and trying to, trying to root everybody in Lucy. So they're really along for the ride with her and from her, from her perspective the entire time, you know, um, I think that taught me how to, how to attempt to do that, you know. Right, and and, and I think I think it's paid off. Um, uh, Sleep of Judges, um, uh, in particular, really worked very well for me. Um, and uh, I think we talked about that at length the last time I interviewed you. But um, I I, th I think with the loop, one of the things that um, that felt really good for me as as, as somebody who's, who's like read all of your work was that, and I admit this. That in the months leading up to this, I thought we were going to get kind of a watered down version, <laughs> you know, of, of and I was very pleasantly surprised that uh, in, in no way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a, this one's a trap door. I, I got a new review today where somebody pointed out like they were like, for those concerned that entering the mainstream marketplace has diluted what Johnson does, like, do not worry. Um, but it's this one. It's it's a it's a trapdoor. I like that term. I think Chris Sacknesson was the one that told me that. Like, you know, a story where it's rooted in the familiar from the beginning. You know, and you have you have these regular tropes. You have your you know outbreak, body snatcher, small town, uh, coming of age, romance stuff, and then somewhere around the fifty percent point, it escalates, and then somewhere around the seventy five percent point, it goes full bonkers. You know, and I think. Um, so people can feel a little bit comfortable and familiar with like those horror tropes and traditional storytelling at the beginning, but then I still go to the places I like to go by the time it's over, um, you know, and and to the places I really have fun writing. So. And it's not just the 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 parasites and the and and the um, the icky like um, like paranoia that would drive someone like you to um, you know MD you know, medical websites to, to look at things, 
you know, and all those things that I expect that those are things too, but it's the humor, it's the, um, uh, like kind of like, sometimes I think with your work too, and you know, some of, I think it's one of the things that we both like about Cody Goodfellow's work too, is that, that sometimes there's just sentences that, that might not make everyone laugh, but make me laugh. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not oh sure. God, I, yeah. I have, I can pull an example right out right now, but like, those are things that, you know, I was glad to see we're still a part of the loop. And, and I think that there, there I, I think there's definitely um, in jokes for people who are, um, more attuned to the genre yeah. you know and and uh and those things i you know and not not in a heavy-handed way but just in a way that i was i was glad to see and and and, and i felt like a jerk for not trusting you from the beginning uh for that but uh you know I, i've seen it happen to lesser you know to some writers i never, never know man to you know and uh editor gets a hold of you you know <laughs> right and, uh, but yeah, so, and you guys, I, I know you share an editor with uh, Stephen Graham Jones. So this uh, editor, I don't know if it's a- uh, 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 Joe Monkey, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow, he had his hands on two really amazing books this year. So, um, and, and, and so, and, and you, this is probably more editing than you've ever gotten before. So can, maybe we can talk a little bit about that eventually. Let's come back. Yeah. Let's start with where you came to structure this story. And you said you set up a trap door from the beginning. Was that always the plan to have the trap door uh, um, set up? No, I, I, th I thought I was going to get, I thought I was going to get into things a lot faster um, as far as the conflict. I, I, I knew I wanted this to be high conflict. I wanted to, to have, um, you know, each chapter kind of pull you through and whip you around because another another thing I wanted to do with this, I've, I've been saying it a lot, but I kind of wanted to do a splatterpunk version of a Michael Crichton novel. So I wanted it to be really propulsive um, and have a lot of the elements of, you know, when I think about books that kept me up super late at night, you know, um, as a kid, I wanted it to have that kind of energy. Um, but in the interest of developing character, uh, I actually ended up spending a lot more of the front end you know, probably the first a novella length at the beginning, you know, first 20,000 words in trying to actually say, wait a minute, before this goes to chaos, get to know Lucy and her past and her town. Because uh, I realized if I if I didn't root people in Lucy properly, they wouldn't care about everything that happened after that. It would just be poor action and and there you go. And, and the bigger stuff I wanted to build to at the end would have less resonance. Um, yeah. And so, and yeah, it was, and that's it was important why... to me to, to come into it, uh, I wanted to come into it with almost a faster pace, but I got really into also learning about Lucy, you know, as I was writing it, so. Which gave it, um, and I know marketing departments want, um, you know, want us to say stranger things, but um, but that gave us the breakfast club vibe yeah. <laughs> that for me, which is, you know, the kind of the class and social divisions and the, the kind of people kind of forced in this situation by this uh, cave party. Um, I'm assuming by that scene that there were cave parties you went to and Ben. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I guess we had limestone queries yeah. in, in Indiana that we went swimming in, but um, sim kind of similar thing. But um, you know, the geographies provide for the teens, you know, yeah. and, uh, 
but uh <laughs> but so the, the, yeah i think you did a really good job of setting up the characters lucy and bucket in particular are really interesting characters and um propel the story in the beginning because um you know what where we, we don't have the the michael crichton kind of insanity yet but we have characters to hook on to that are interesting that we want to know about and um and i think that you know it's that whole adage you got to care to scare you know kind of thing and, yeah. and so that was important and i i feel and, and you did that now um it's funny because i don't think a lot of people are picking up on the crichtony um uh, vibe and i kind of feel crappy for not catching on to that myself too uh, <laughs> it happens about it, it it really amplifies it about the 50 percent point when when steve is introduced the guy that, that worked at Imtech. Hey, maybe, uh, maybe you, know. you just needed more climate change denial and people. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know? Well, uh, since, since I felt it was important for the first half that Lucy and her friends have no idea what's going on, um, there weren't there weren't enough early opportunities to introduce a, a scientist for an info dump. You know, I had to wait yeah. until <laughs> wait until later to kind of get that that down uh, and inform, inform it. You know, I wanted them to be encountering the peer unknown for, for quite some time. Well, and I think of like, um, there was a lot of like made for TV horror movies in the early eighties. And it always cracked me up that there was like a neighborhood occult expert, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who was that guy? I never knew that guy. Yeah. There was one that Wes Craven directed where they literally said, Oh, that's blah, blah. He's our neighborhood occult expert. And, uh, you know, thankfully, you know, <laughs> we know better now than to not it's do awfully that. convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and for that reason, you, you you had to kind of keep them in the dark. But I think it's fine um, that I think it works really, really well, actually, um, in the sense that I was hooked into the characters. And I think it gives people a sense of um, it makes things more shocking when when like that, like the first uh, I think Bucket gets bit, uh, you know, by the woman that he was crushing on. And yep. like she won't let go, right? And that first, I was like, "Whoa, he's really getting hurt, uh, very badly now." And it, it that level and that intensity was something I didn't expect to happen that quickly to a character who was that important to the first quarter of the book. And I, I, I really liked that, um, that kind of shift because for me that was a decision that uh, kind of took me back because I, I didn't expect that. So um, uh, did, was that on purpose? Was that a, was a conscious choice and how you were setting up oh. the narrative to move? Yeah, on? no, it was, it was intentional. Just, um, I always think it's good to, especially if people are in that comfort zone too. Like I said, there is a lot of that first half that's, uh, you kind of have a sense of, okay, I, I know this mode of storytelling. Um, to kind of set a shot across the bow and say, uh, this isn't necessarily as safe as, as you're used to. You know, um, uh, basically, you know, when whenever you do that, you worry about it because you also worry that people will become attached to the characters and they want that character to be on the ride with them, you know, and that you can push them yeah. away. So so it's a it's a kind of um, it's a hard edge to ride. But I think it's important to to have situations. I think about two, two of my favorite story flips of all time. One happens in Jack Ketchum's offseason and another happens in James Elroy's The Big Nowhere. And both of them spend massive amounts of the book introducing and getting deeply into the mindset of a character who proves to uh, not even make it halfway through the narrative. And um, 
when that happened both times, I was completely shocked, but also thrilled because all of a sudden I realized like this story could be any story. It could be, it's, this is anybody's game. Um, and so, yeah, having a little bit of that built into it, I thought was, it's something that I like in the fiction I read. So I, th I thought it would be cool, you know? Well, it took me a couple of uh, Repairman Jack books to realize that absolutely anyone besides Jack was in mortal danger at all times. Yeah. When F. Paul Wilson was writing those books and he had one where, um, and I'm sorry for the spoiler for anyone who doesn't get there, but there's, I won't say which one, but one of them is his dad gets like killed in the first, like in the first chapter of the book. And you're just like, because <laughs> yeah. they were setting up the whole book to be, this father and son trip and this whole thing. And then the, he kills the dad and he was like, but he had a situation where no matter what, Jack had to go through all the stories. So everybody yeah. else was. There's only one bulletproof character there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like, I really appreciated and liked that, um, that Lucy, like, it, well, it, it felt more dangerous to her too, you know, yeah. that, that she could go through this. So t tell me a little bit more about developing Lucy. Um, well, initially it was, um, I, I found Lucy in a vision, right? I, <laughs> I, uh, like I said, I writing these other two, like very personal stories, um, with sleep of judges and in the river, I basically had kind of used up a lot of my mojo just as a storyteller. I'd put so much into those books and they were so personal. Um, and I was fried out, but I was scheduled to go you know, a week later and stay and do another three days in a hotel and, and start, start work on the loop, which at the time was called exit human, um, which they thought was too much like a Philip K. Dick title, <laughs> which is why it's the loop now, which is funny. But, uh, and I was just thinking, I like exit human, but. Oh I, yeah. I love, I love that title, but it does have a pretty, it does kind of have a hard sci-fi ring to it. Right. Um, and I get, I get where they're coming from with that. But uh, I, I don't know, like one thing we've learned through doing the Dickheads podcast is that uh, Philip K. Dick always had the worst title possible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like every single book had a terrible title before the editors um, got We're into We're like, it. hey, buddy. <laughs> well, you know, the original title for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was um, the, um, the Killers Are Among Us um, Said the Special Man or something like that. <laughs> Sounds awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like um, Rick Decker, the killers are among us, said the special man. It's literally the first title that he had for it. Yeah. So. Well, then maybe maybe Flow My Tears was an actual one, right? Like he got that one through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, Lucy. Yeah. So, so I, I was um, basically closest I've ever been to a, to a writer's block and knowing I was supposed to head into a hotel and generate 20,000 words the next weekend, which is what I normally try to do. And um, and so my wife got me a gift certificate for this place here uh, out in Southeast called Float On. That's a sensory deprivation tank. And I, I went, I, I did a float and um, basically uh, like 45 minutes in had a vision of all these stars swirling and they came together and it spelled her name. It said Lucia. And I was like, well, I guess that's the answer. Like, I, that's my through line for this novel is this young woman named Lucia. Uh, and then from there, just kind of developed her around, um, you know, everybody in this book, it's, it's a coming of age thing, but it's also my like um, small processing growing up in a small town being a weird kid novel, right? Like everybody's got one of those in them too, whether it's a memoir or fiction, fictionalized. 
I'm uh, editing so, one right now. Yeah, yeah. So everybody's got one of them. So this was this was mine. And yeah, there are a ton of people that are kind of amalgams of people I grew up with and stuff. So Lucy's based on on a lot of different people I knew um, growing up. You know, as is Brewer and and Bucket and you know even all the jerks, right? They've <laughs> people have been people from Bend have been writing me saying, "Hey, did you really see so and so kick a cat to death?" Like which one because people were you know they grew up around the same time as me they they kind of know a lot of the narratives from my uh town and so uh they're kind of well, reading where, the book where know? story elements came from yeah and so no everybody's names have been changed just enough that uh if i ever get to do a reading in bend i'm not going to get jumped or sued so <laughs> but you know they're reading the book because they're they're picking up on this stuff but but yeah so lucy being um being uh, an immigrant in a way because she was adopted here um, yeah, yeah. made her a very interesting character and and made her somebody that instantly makes her a little bit more interesting than just like your your average bend teenager you know yeah. and and her and bucket both so i thought that was a really smart smart decision and once you had because lucia came to you and in, in the float but then Bucket, did you want to give her somebody that she could relate to or? Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, I, I just, I wanted her to have a friend who, I, I wanted two best friends that spoke their own language. You know, like there's certain people you're growing up with and it's almost like um, you, ha you have this form of communication that's yours and yours alone. There's like that really special bond you have with somebody who you feel like you are surviving with. You know, if there if there's one person you attach to when you're a kid and you're like, okay, I understand where you're coming from, you understand where I'm coming from, and this is how we get through this experience together. Um, I wanted them to have that and for that to be special. Uh, so I thought, you know, if he also was an, an outcast in the same way that she was, that it was not just um, you know class based, but but you know, being people of color in a tiny you know white tourist town. Um, that that would be another thing that would unite them and give them their own understanding of each other that nobody else would quite have. So that was kind of where he came from. And some people might be like kind of annoyed with me that I'm focusing so much on on them. But I think one of the things that's interesting is that as being as somebody who's read all, I think all of your work, um, at least all your published work, but um, you know, at this point, like, one of the things that's really interesting for me is that um, it's not the half technology, half monster, weird hybrid things that I'm thinking about a week after reading The Loop. The things that I've been coming back to is how much the characterizations works towards making the second half of the book function better. And I think in this particular novel, the thing that I kept thinking about, about when, cause it just the reason I write reviews and the reason why I do this podcast is I'm trying to grow as a writer by not just reading books, but trying to consume them and learn from them. Yeah. So, you know, so, and I know you do that too, because you yeah. tell a great story on your Powell's interview about reading um, Evanson and finding all the maybes in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause now I'm looking for them. But a lot of perhaps too. Yeah, maybe perhaps. <laughs> right. But stuff ending a lot of question marks. <laughs> but for me, the thing that I really just kept thinking about when I kept thinking about the loop and trying to put this 
through my grinder to, to, to what function of what worked about this is that, and it, it's not rocket science. It's not anything that we haven't known all along or for years, but the establishment of Lucy as a character is so primary to what functions when shit goes bananas in the, in, in the second half of the book. And I think that if she wasn't such a strong character that we, you know, somewhat feel uncomfortable for, we definitely like feel sorry for her in this high school that she doesn't fit in and, and then all these things that it makes it so much more meaningful when her best friend is, is you know, first bit and then, you know, and, and then taken away from her. And then this, this, the importance of the loss of Bucket in this story to me is the crux of which the book hangs on, you know? Yeah. And, and um, for me, it's, it, I, I've been looking for those cruxes and those hinges this year um, when I've been reading. And for example, like Mallory, there's a whole, there's one conversation that happens on the train in Mallory that the whole book hinges on. And it's not the action scenes. It's not the, it, it's all that. And, and Josh confirmed to me that he thought I was onto something to say yeah, yeah. hinged on it. And to me, the thing that this book hinges on, even though Bucket is lost, is that relationship with them is like one of the things that kind of just fuels it because that's such a gut punch for, for Lucy. And then she becomes the person who will put the ax in people later. But I don't know that if she hadn't gone through through that, then she doesn't become the hero of, of, of the second half, right? Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, it's it's the literal midpoint of the book uh, as far as word count goes. Like right right there, it is. It's the that's the hinge, you know, um, and it's the setup for, you know, all the revelation and then the the escalating action, you know. And it's it, there's kind of many versions of those escalations up to that point, but then things really explode and there's um, at the crux of that, yeah, it's it's what drives her different personalities, these different versions of Lucy that she feels she has had to be in different social settings and different worlds. Um, it's part of what what furthers that divide within her and kind of, uh, it's also, like you said, it's that act of atrocity that pushes her kind of beyond the mode that she knew she would ever exist in. All of a sudden, you know, she, she, ha she has PTSD, she's known trauma, but this finally takes her beyond the pale to where she has to decide which person am I going to be? What, what human being am I after all of this atrocity and what has meaning in my life? And can I connect with other human beings? And, and um, you know, why couldn't I before? And yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a really central part of that, um, you know, and it's kind of sets up her challenge of, you know, what, what does Brewer mean to her? What does it mean to continue uh, living on in the face of tragedy and what do we have together as humans that would be worth fighting for you know so I feel like that's also it's just the other it's the part where people um, stop midway through the book and uh, send me messages to yell at me <laughs> like what did you do <laughs> so that's, that's been interesting it's it's like one of the big Goodreads uh, stop points which I always you know you can kind of analyze those you can figure out okay here's where maybe I was a little too slow at the beginning Here's where people get upset. Here's where people start saying, what the fuck, you know, which is the latter 70 to 100, you know. 
Well, well, and and by having her parents um, having died in the mine accident, also is the kind of Shane Blackian setup, um, you know, with the you, you know, because Shane Black always has like some some kind of thing early on that you know is going to pay off later, and and so like the parallel of the trauma that her parents didn't survive, and then you know she's got to ah. get through. I'm sorry, it's dog yeah. eating time. <laughs> here so so that will be a little bit of barking i'll be trying to mute whenever you're talking uh, <laughs> but uh um it, it, at this point in the in the book it, it's it's just it seems like once you know we get this payoff that that she she has to try and survive this trauma that her parents couldn't and, and i don't know if that's a parallel you set up intentionally or if it was accidental but um it was it, it's um Take credit. Yeah, that, for I was just going to say, yeah, it's a it's an accident that I'll claim was <laughs> intentional. <laughs> stuff, stuff echoes, on. right? Some, sometimes you accidentally get something, get something right. So, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. And um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I just definitely really appreciated that that aspect of it. So once things got bonkers, how much of this was research, and where did this all come from? Like once the the stuff goes goes crazy, um, yeah. I mean, I I love doing doing my research. So um, I had all kinds of FCC and FDA documentation for communications devices, and biotech implants, and and um, what for whatever reason I like getting into the government documentation because um, it has a tendency to use such obtuse like hierarchical jargon language that it makes stuff feel alien and, and weird. And so when I'm researching something, I like to go to whatever the um, like government documents related to that process are. Um, and so, yeah, there was, there was a lot of research about uh, biotech devices and then a lot of research about um, certain animal. I don't know, for whatever reason, people aren't spoiling one of the later twists about the biotech. Uh, so I've been trying not to do that also, but um, but we're of, doing spoilers and there's going to be a spoiler warning from the beginning. Oh, okay. So. Okay. Well, so yeah, I, I read a lot about um, the octopus, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, that was, I, I find them to be completely fascinating creatures. And, um, and I think given all the properties inherent to them that they do make a kind of a, a very viable, like biotech subject. Um, and so there was a lot of research into that and um, also just kind of conspiracy mindsets and um, you know what what drives conspiracy-based thinking and stuff like that, and so yeah, there was a there was a ton of research that went into the sci science fiction aspect of it that becomes prominent later in the book, uh, which I, I love doing that stuff. You know? Yeah, and and um, you are well known for your research um, <clears throat> for sure, and I think that it pays off um, definitely in the back half of this book. For sure, and and um, like I said, I feel kind of silly that I didn't catch on to the the Crichton comparison. And uh, <laughs> I probably just didn't do it that know. well, you know. <laughs> if you didn't pick it up, yeah. maybe it wasn't there. But it was it was part of what guided well, me through it, think, you know. Well, Crichton's kind of he. People don't read Crichton like they used to, um, you know. It, like I don't think. And for what I and I do think it's the the climate change denial and some of the weird shit he got into at the end that people aren't hero him anymore. It's kind of like the Dan Simmons thing where like 
you know, you don't have as many people pushing, like, go back and read Carrying Comfort now because they're like, it's kind of right. sketchy. And, uh, it, it, and so I think for that, you know, it's like, for example, Philip K. Dick will always have people like me who are evangelical about him and I'm trying to spread right. the word, but I don't know if Crichton has that, you know, but I don't know. Well, and they even it's, tried to revive but, him too. But, I saw they, uh, they were pulling the same thing they did with Ludlum where they have other thriller writers. Somebody did a new Andromeda strain, I guess. Um, yeah, you know, a, a friend of mine had the guy, uh, cause he's from Portland who wrote um, the, I think it's Daniel Wilson, oh, yeah, the guy the, who wrote Robo the Apocalypse guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I listened to an interview with him where he was talking about getting into the Crichton voice and it was interesting you know, hearing him talk about that, I'm not big enough of a fan of Andromeda Strain to run out and yeah. get it. But, um, you know, I read Crichton a little bit when I was growing up, but uh, for whatever reason, he didn't connect to me, you know, like some do. So that might be another reason why I didn't catch on to it. But I really do, you know, um, but it's funny because uh, another uh, kind of similar thing too, but not really, but, um, you know, John Shirley had crawlers, which had like mechanical spiders that were going around killing people, and and um, and obviously not the same thing, but but you know, kind of in the same wheelhouse of like the small town and and and, and all that, and um, so I did appreciate that too because that's that was my first John Shirley book actually was was crawlers. So um, so there were some, there were a few comparisons there too, but. But one of the things that I really liked in the in the back half is that once you did get to that halfway point, and once it did get going, that's when you got into the pacing that reminded me of Survivor Song, where it's just it was just really unrelenting once you got to that point. Yeah. Um, and um, in, in, a, in a weird way, what I felt like it was is like because what you're talking about is like a biotech type thing getting unleashed, right? So it's almost like a barrel got dumped out, and it's all like pouring down a hill uh, and so what I that's kind of how I kind of saw the pace of the book is that there's it's almost like a spill that's like spreading out and going down and you can't stop it right yeah it, it, and um, I really liked how the pace um, felt organic that way what are some things that you did to try and make sure that you kept that pace going I um, my book ring of fire I tried to do a similar thing with um, once the action started, just having the pace going really, you know, fast. So I know the things that I did. I'm kind of interested to hear what what you did uh, to, to move that pace along that way. Um, I think at that point, I just, um, <laughs> you know, the chat the chapters got shorter. Uh, people were doing less thinking <laughs> and more uh, more doing because at that point they were in. You know, it became primal. You know, it was. It, it wasn't about psychologically surviving, it was about physically surviving. And so rooting it more in the physicality of that. I mean, even in an earlier, you know, there's a, there's like a car chase earlier in the book, but it's almost still a psychological experience for Lucy. It's more about Lucy's perception of, of the, the car chase and her coming to understand the new world that's, that's around her. So um, yeah, the first, the first half, there's that trickle effect. I, I really like that description of the barrel tipped over. And there's just those little streams of information where, you know, small things are happening in the background, um, which is something I thought like the, the Kaufman, like the 70s invasion of the body snatchers in the first third of that, there's just so many little tiny brilliant moments that let you know something is off. 
but they're never, you know, accompanied by a big audio stab or anything. It's just like things are wrong, you know? And so that my hope was to kind of have it be that until it was a full on, you know, fight for survival. And at that point, um, you know, when they're all in that music shop together, the exchange, um, I also just really wanted to do something that was an homage to, I tried to, I wanted it to feel like it was kind of the thing and Assault on Precinct 13 at the same time. So, so there's this threat on the outside, but there's also this threat on the inside. Um, and, and to see kind of how I could merge those two things to, um, you know, cause the tension to rise. And then after that, it, um, it happened really organically. I mean, the, the big last chunk of that I wrote across, um, probably two weeks, just, just writing nonstop. And it felt urgent to me, like I, I, everything that was happening. And also, you know, I started with a lot of characters. And then when you realize you're to the point where um, characters are going to start dying, it's almost like that becomes the trigger for these, these uh, plot points as, as we winnow away down to our, you know, final girl or, or whatever the final conflict's going to be. Um, it's almost like that, knowing you have so many characters who aren't going to make it gives you its own form of guidance it's weird you know right well and then in the pacing in in that regard um kind of takes on a different uh i I know with the characters like you kind of have to have a rhythm when you're spacing out all the different characters and then that rhythm has to change Ah. it's almost like a song speeding Ah. up when 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 uh, when you decrease i'm sorry about the dog uh uh but uh you know when 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 you when you lose characters you have to you have to pick up the pace anyways was it always intentional to have a quick pace um it was always my hope you know (laughs) like i said uh uh if i if i would have pulled off what i had in my head the first half would be would be just as half as a second but once i got into it i I really uh you know my my literary instincts kicked in and I, i really wanted to do a make it more of a character centered piece I felt like in Skullcrack City, I, I got into Doyle to a degree, but I still feel like that's a book that's dominated by plot and dominated by ideas, you know, which is always a criticism like early Cronenberg got, you know, they were, they were like, this is more a concept, a fascinating concept than it is a story about human beings, you know? And so it was almost in a response to Skullcrack City was to say, what if I could still have, you know, a pretty, pretty vibrant, wild plot, but also make it a, a more personal character study. And in trying to do that, you know, it kind of, uh, kind of altered the the pathway into it. Yeah. Um, just on a side note, since you mentioned Cronenberg, where do you think, I think it was the fly where Cronenberg learned to do humans. No, um, no absolutely. Cause you look at like, I mean, even okay. before that, they feel like people being positioned to express ideas. Like there's, there's some of the stuff in scanners that feels a little more naturalistic and a little more character based. But man, yeah, no, you look at look at Shivers and Rabid and the Brood and Scanners. Um, even even Videodrome feels like an exploration of ideas more so um, in, in a way that I love. I mean, that's something that totally lights me up as a, as a film goer. But The Fly is the one where that central romance and uh, kind of the, the horror of watching Jeff Goldblum disintegrate <laughs> was uh, it just made it all feel more organic and more human, even though his weird obsessions were still clearly on display. You know, there's a lot of cold metal, a lot of weird shapes, a lot of body horror. But um, since since the biggest part of the horror of it was their relationship falling apart as his body fell apart, I think that's what made that 
feel different, you know? Yeah, I didn't mean to ask about Cronenberg. I don't know how that happened, but- Yeah, uh, yeah I never uh, <laughs> asked questions about that guy. This was supposed to be about the loop. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, th that's the thing is like, we've also, um, your, your fans or the people that read you are picking up on the Cronenberg influence, even though that's not really being marketed that way. Um, but, you know, obviously Cronenberg has had a huge influence on this book in particular. What, what do you think are the strongest ways that Cronenberg influenced this particular um, book? I mean, I mean, I think conceptually when we're talking about an outbreak that takes away impulse control, that's shivers, you know, it's, it's, it's even more shivers than it is, say, 28 days later or something like that. You know, we're talking about being infected by something that makes the worst in us come out. Um, and, a little and bit of people, rabid, too. A little bit of rabid. Yeah, yeah, there's a know. smidge of rabid. I was never crazy about rabid. But yeah, there's there's some of that there with the, the way it moves around. But yeah, no. And then also, there's there's some stuff that happens, you know, in the final stretch that's very almost visually inspired by by Cronenberg and that sense of invasiveness and that sense of eruption and that sense of mutation. Um, and then somebody else pointed out there's like more Fulci than they were expecting. Uh, I didn't realize until somebody pointed out how much uh, eye gore there is. There's a, there's a lot of eye trauma in this book and I, I didn't see it at the time until somebody pointed it out. But uh, yeah, the film, the filmic influences on the, on the book are, are pretty, I, I wear my influences on my sleeve, you know, so they're, they're pretty, pretty out there. I just try to, to make it my voice riffing on the on that stuff that I love, you know, so it, it doesn't come across as, uh, you know, stealing. <laughs> it, so it comes across as homage, you know. All right, so we're coming close to the end here. So just between you, me, and the internet, yeah, um, you know. But I mean, they have to make it this far. So what part of the marketing annoys you more? The Stranger Things comparison or the World War Z comparison? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> it's weird because uh, they are, they're putting Stranger Things on everything right now. They just are, you know, it's, it's yeah. that, it's that kind of, it's a dominant concept in the marketplace that people are attracted to. And if you have kids in a small town fighting against the source of evil that comes from a lab, you're gonna get hit with Stranger Things. Um, I initially pitched it to them as Shivers uh, meets Daisy Confused because you know it was a lot more of like these people right at the edge of graduation, uh, wandering around town talking and there just happens to be this massive biotech outbreak. Um, the, the World War Z one is even, it's a little bit rougher. I almost wish they would have said 28 days later or something like that as far as, as outbreak goes or as far as trying to say zombie without saying zombie goes. Um, because World War Z, sometimes people are expecting it to be told in the style of World War Z, right? And they're expecting it, exactly. right. And so now you, they're coming in and they're like, well, this is gonna have little kids riding around on bikes. It's gonna have a supernatural threat and it's gonna be you know told from all these different narrative voices. Uh, that's that's what that actual merger would be. Um, but I, I guess what they kind of do in New York is they just take the two most popular terms that can even vaguely apply to the book and slap them together. Uh, so I don't know. It's it's brought people to the book that otherwise might not have found it. Um, not all of them are super excited about how fucked up and weird it is. <laughs> but uh, but there's also some people who you know maybe found it as an impulse thing because they like Stranger Things and found out they like something new. So 
uh, that's that's what I'm crossing my fingers is happening. Yeah. It's very angry dog here oh. right now while you while you were talking, but um, <laughs> but uh, uh, he really did not like the World War Z comparison. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was like looking for government reports in yeah. the novel and yeah. was very upset that there wasn't, that there was only the talk yeah. radio yeah. guy. That well, there is that guy though. But, uh, <laughs> there is that guy. Yeah. He's there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's too bad he couldn't just have Art Bell be in there. For, yeah, he was for, He was on my mind when I was writing that stuff. You know, I'm an yeah. old Art Bell fan. So, so he's always in there somewhere yeah. when I'm theorizing. <laughs> right. Well, it's like you can always like touring musicians. They all spend a lot of time like listening yeah. to coast to coast driving at night, and it's funny because like um, they all like it, it's interesting to see which ones picked up on the conspiracy yeah. theories and which ones don't. But they all know all of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, Jeremy, the the loop was was really good. Um, it it I, I definitely think this the strength. But the hinge of the book is the characters and that's something that you can be Thanks, really man. proud of and um like i mean all the jeremy johnson like you know parasite paranoia freakazoid stuff yeah. is there it's all there but um what's i think really good to me or what's really great for me about this book is that i think um, you're so good at that stuff. You've you've gotten so good at that stuff that um, it's awesome to see you conquer new aspects of storytelling and 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 meld it together with your style in a way, you know. Um, because because you're right. Like um, Skullcrack City, as good as it as it is, um, it, it has one character that we know we get to learn very yeah. well. But and Doyle very full fully realized, but. Um, even the minor characters like Brewer, for example, and in the loop are are uh, very, you know, uh, fully realized and 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 great characters and 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 good work for that. Is there anything um, like as far as just the writing of the book that um, maybe you haven't gotten to talk about yet that 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 you uh, you know that you're really proud of something that came out of this process that you felt like you nailed that that was new for you. Um, to, to close this out that that you can impart to other writers yeah um man just that i just that i got it done <laughs> you know uh this was a book that um you know in a in a weird way that my agent was waiting on since 2005 when she signed me you know talk about a patient person waiting for me to come around uh it took me 12 years to to get something uh something done and in front of her. So just, just persevere. Oh, so you, know? you waited like we did for Skullcrack City, right? Yeah. So. It's, it's always a wait with me. It's always, it's always like a five-year wait between books. <laughs> that reminds me, the one question I teased that I didn't get to hmm. working with an editor this time, what was, let's talk about the process of working with an editor and then we'll close up shop. Um, so Joe Monty was a very intuitive editor. Um, I would say we changed I did four different edits. Uh, the first one was significant, um, and it was nine thousand words different from the draft. You know, the first the draft I got to him was probably my third or fourth draft, and then so we probably finished on an eighth draft, which is crazy. Um, but it was it was an extensive editorial process, and um, he really understood what made the book tick. and And what was interesting is he actually pushed me to put in to strengthen the conspiracy elements. I was trying to make it very much uh, a subjective experience of Lucy's 
And so a lot of the conspiracy stuff got ramped up um, during the editorial process and um, some, of, some of the violence too. We actually had a couple, um, just because the, of the content of the book, you know, passed it through a couple sensitivity readers, you know, to say, hey, did, you know, are there issues we should be concerned about with, with Jeremy's portrayal of the narrator, uh, with this voice, with the content. And one of the funniest things that happened is one of the readers got back to us and said, you know, I think he's done a wonderful job of portraying a female character um, in this, but what where he failed was the moment the outbreak happens, all of the violent antagonists become male. And she said, as far as I know, this isn't an all boys school or an all boys city, but the violence becomes all boy. And I realized, and my editor even realized we both had that bias. We saw violence as like inherently male. And and she was like, you know, if you if you change it and you have more uh, female antagonists too, um, it will feel more shocking to people. And uh, that the, that sense of wrongness will come through in a stronger way. And so it was the first time I'd have someone directly confront a bias I didn't even know existed in my mind and, and strengthen the work by making me aware of it. Um, so that was, you know, another part of the editorial process I never got to experience before. And it was awesome, you know? So shout out to the crew at Simon & Schuster. They, they know what they're doing. It's, it's a, um, I'm much happier with the book we put out than the one that I sent to them. Well, yeah. And, and yeah, it turned out great. And, um, wow. I didn't know, I didn't realize you'd been, uh, uh, your agent had been sticking with you since 2005. For yes. You saw a lot of weird books, man. Yeah. <laughs> so patient. Well, um, it paid off and, um, uh, the book is really good. Um, Jeremy, I, at some point I'm going to, um, have to rope you in for eventually I want to do a, a serious Prince of Darkness yes. tribute episode. I'm there. And, I am uh, there. It's having a, it's having a thing right now. I don't know if you've looked around the internet lately. People are starting to appreciate that film. People are starting to put it where it belongs in his top five. You know, did, have I talked to you since I went to the screening in the church? Where I saw filmed? pictures and somebody, somebody told me the church yeah. and the basement are in different spaces though. Is that true? Uh, no, no, the they're in the oh. same space, but but the weirdest thing was just, especially like walking in the alley, the yeah. where where the the bike stabbing and the and the where they jumped yeah. down, and then was up like being in that alley was like one of the weirdest things for me. And uh, so the the screening that they did of Prince of Darkness was in the actual room where they set up the. Oh equipment. my god, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, and the, so they put a screen up, and then. And you had to walk up these stairs and then um, the room where they had set up all the equipment. And it's funny because they put up a picture on the screen and then they like pointed to a part in the, where, where you could see on the, in the picture from the movie, like, you know, like this part of the wall that was like kind of stuck out and you're just like, I am in that yeah. room. Yeah, that yeah. Is, yeah, I think that's as close to a religious experience <laughs> that I could have at a church. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I did think of you, uh, several times during the evening and, um, you know, I would have flipped out for that, man. Every, I've seen, I've seen other people's pictures and stuff too. And, and I just think to myself, man, I, I just, if I wouldn't have the yeah. money for a flight, <laughs> that's, a, that's a long way, but well, yeah, we, well, thankfully it was like only a three hour drive each way for us, yeah. but, um, but down here, but, uh, it was it was truly truly an insane experience, but um, 
but I still think the movie needs more credit. You're right. People are, are jumping onto it. It's, it's weird. The whole thing of like, but I still don't get people, the Renaissance for Halloween three. I don't understand because not the same thing. Yeah. Wait, but it's, just, where's the Renaissance like, for night of the creeps? You know, it's like, it, I, nobody talks about night of the creeps enough. That is a, that yeah, is a well, funny, weird, excellent movie. Isn't Shane Black one yeah. of the writers? Yeah. 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 And and Fred, Decker. Fred Decker is Decker his writing partner. Yeah. Yeah. So I, maybe I the, the that, that could be up next. We can we can I mean, okay. I the Halloween three thing is just part of a broader conversation, right? Like but yeah. the Night of the Creeps is a standalone. And so so that is another one I'd like to see get it get its due. Just saying. Well what what I think <laughs> is going on with Halloween three is we're old enough to remember being disappointed in Halloween right. three. Whereas right. the younger people, like I had this argument with Trevino all the time because he's like, you're wrong. Halloween three is amazing. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. We were disappointed. So we fucking hate that movie, but you're younger. <laughs> so you like it. And, the psychological and- buildups all different. It's like going to see, I, w- I went to see a midnight showing a crystal skull. Like you can't, you know, yeah, there's, what? there's times where you go to stuff and you and what you're expecting it to be because of all these like huge experiences in your youth. And then when it's not that it's a, when it's disheartening like that, it's tougher to appreciate it. Right. Well, when I, when I, I took my dad to see crystal skull, like two weeks after it came out and I saw yeah. it the night and, and I realized that when I saw it in an audience that was all senior citizens, but me, like all the jokes worked. Uh, like that, I like I, it worked for the seniors and I was like wow this movie works for this audience <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it found its people because it wasn't me <laughs> it wasn't me either yeah. but uh, but yeah but anyways Jeremy uh, it was awesome talking to you um, we'll, yeah. we'll uh, at some point we'll do the Prince of Darkness panel um, uh, in, the, in the next year or so but I, uh, I definitely uh, uh, appreciated the loop and um, can't wait to see what you got cooking next. Are you already working on something? Uh, I'm, no, I'm working on college courses right now. I'm my son's fourth grade teacher and I'm uh, getting ready to take another statistics course. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to scrap my way back up to a degree. So well, um, I, can't no, I, I have some ideas to dive back in on. Yeah, my statistics papers to be released. <laughs> the statistics horror. Uh, no, I'm, yeah. I'm working on a, uh, my next thing is kind of about um, like a globe, well, I don't want to spoil it, but it's like a global, the way, it's about the way we use economics as a form of terrorism and about a guy who is traveling in another country and representing this kind of shady third party, you know, economics group that's doing the bidding of the 1% and him encountering uh, something that he didn't expect. In, in a foreign place and and uh, kind of so a little bit of cabal action to it anyway well it's a whole thing hey it sounds it's- like william gibson i can't wait till it gets marketed right. with stranger things yeah <laughs> yeah I, there's no way by the time i actually finish another novel people will be saying stranger things right like yeah, there's no it'll way it'll be something not with that season three <laughs> all right jeremy it was great talking to you and uh and everybody read uh the loop again uh go out if you soon most everybody here has listened to or read the loop so go read skullcrack city if they have good luck finding it (laughs) (laughs) all right jeremy it's great talking all right man